0: Welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me Ellie and me Ben and something we haven't actually done yet. We just wanted to say welcome if you're a new listener.
1: Yeah, that's right. We're here to talk about all things wildlife gardening. So if that's what you're interested in, then you're in the right place.
0: Yes, we're developing quite the community of people. I think it's very nice. So we're going to kick off today with our usual sightings, things we've seen in gardens around about Nottingham. Yeah,
1: we get to cheat because we're professional gardeners, so we get to see a lot of gardens.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and we've seen loads in the last two weeks. We've seen toads chilling out in some wet mud, of which there is a lot, by the way. Right now, it has basically not stopped raining for about 48 hours in Nottingham.
1: Met says it is the official wettest May on record. Oh, dear.
0: Every month, there's some record being broken, isn't there?
1: Oh, I don't know. The gardeners. Is- just love to complain <laughs> when it's say too that. dry we yeah. complain when it's too wet we complain gives... i actually like it i like the variation
0: it gives us something to blame if things aren't aren't going so well
1: <laughs> yeah and more time to uh sit in the van and drink tea and eat biscuits <laughs>
0: <laughs> no we've seen yeah absolutely loads of things in the last fortnight haven't we uh as well as the toads we have seen lacewing actually quite a few lacewing i don't know if they've just emerged or something but they're absolutely beautiful creatures i think they're really wonderful
1: Yeah, I mean, they're called lacewing because of the really fine pattern on their wings, aren't they?
0: And they're actually the gardener's friend in their capacity for eating aphids.
1: Yes, and our topic for today is actually going to be biological controls, and they are a really handy one.
0: Very apt. Actually, another thing I've seen in in the last couple of weeks is a lot of ground beetles, which is another beneficial predator of the garden. And I actually went on Facebook to get an identification of the beetle that I actually found, and it was a carabidae beetle so in the Carabidae family or otherwise known as a carabid beetle and there are 350 of those in the uk so i I couldn't get quite down to the species level of identification but they are known as the ground beetles and they are extremely predatory and you can find them throughout most of the year actually feeding on all sorts of things in your soil like caterpillars wireworms maggots ants aphids and slugs so they're another fantastic gardener's friend
1: we were at a house which is it's a new estate, isn't it? Mm. And we we were digging up the lawn, part of the lawn, to create a new border. And we instead of throwing away turves, if you're ever digging up a lawn, please don't throw away the the turves. Just pile them all up in one corner and allow them to rot down, because topsoil is a really valuable resource, and you just don't want to be chucking that in the bin. Um, but what we found is that this bank of turves that we laid basically became a beetle bank didn't it
0: it did and we actually talked about that a few episodes ago the rhs were trying to promote people in in making this beetle bank and it's just like an area of raised land and i think it just means that the soil warms up faster and there's just more surface area for creatures to live in and these beetles really do enjoy that a lot so yeah we've accidentally made a beetle bank so it just goes to prove that it does actually work so if you do have space in your garden for that then that's a really good thing to do And we've also, of course, made lovely uh, compost in rotting down all those turves. Yeah, that's right. Which is good. And finally, another predatory group is lots of ladybirds. We also had to get this identified on Twitter. So thank you very much to Helen Roy, who told us that we'd seen a cream-streaked ladybird. And we've also seen lots of two spots and also seven spots, which are really voracious predators of aphids. So... Go Ladybirds.
1: Indeed. And we should also give a shout out to the Hidden Wings and Bloodlust podcast, which yeah. is all about ladybirds. Hi, Rachel. And now's a good time to say we were on the UK Wildlife Podcast 50th episode with yeah. Hidden Wings and Bloodlust and loads of other wildlife podcasts as well. Yeah,
0: nine of us in total. I just put a post about this on our Facebook page, actually. it is, I'm not just trying to plug us. I'm very much plugging all of the other podcasters on that show it was a lot of fun and it is really good listening actually it's very entertaining we had a lot of fun
1: yeah so we'll link to that episode where you can get an extra dose of us but you can also be introduced to all the other good wildlife podcasts out there as well
0: yeah so i think that concludes uh, the sightings of things in gardens but can i just add one thing we did go away this weekend just gone and had the most amazing bird watching time. Well, so this... we just
1: had the best days nature spotting we've ever had.
0: Oh my goodness! I've seen linnets now for the first time. Type of bird that loves farmland and the seeds that are there. Uh, what else did we see?
1: Bullfinches eating uh, dandelion clocks.
0: Yes, and this is something that has been shared lots on Facebook. So birds really do like the seeds of dandelions. So if you can leave dandelions in your lawn, they're really great both for the pollen and nectar and for their seeds. So yeah, that's, uh, that's our sightings for this podcast, but we are now going to move on to our news section. I think Ben's going to go first today.
1: Yeah, well, on the topic of birds eating dandelion clocks, uh, our first bit of news is now is the chance to get involved in Plant Life's citizen science project called Every Flower Counts, And they run this in conjunction with their No Mo May project. So just like the Big Garden Birdwatch or similar projects like that, they ask you at the end of May to spend a little bit of time in your garden looking at how many wildflowers you have in your lawn. In their words, they say, we want to know which flowers are most abundant on lawns and work out how much nectar they are producing for our beleaguered pollinators. And in previous years, they've found, well, they've extrapolated from the research that they've done using Re- records that have been sent into them from regular gardeners, and found that you know the lawns in the UK just with the daisies and yeah dandelions and clovers, different things like that. There are hundreds of millions, if not billions, of individual flowers just in our lawns all we over the UK. We read out
0: some of those results, didn't we, from previous years? So I think it was one hundred ninety-one thousand daisies were found.
1: Yeah, and that that was just in their sample. So you know, if mm-hmm. you extrapolate that across how many gardens there are in the country it's just absolutely amazing so all you need to do to take part in this survey is well they actually recommend a tennis ball or a small football something like that and that's because you want to get a random sample and it's very difficult to get a random sample from your garden so instead if you just sort of chuck a tennis ball or something behind you see where it lands then you mark out a meter square around the tennis ball and you've got a random sample To mark out the sample area, you just need a couple of canes or some string, something like that, and you just make this meter square, which is called a transect in the ecological world. And then Plant Life have a series of identification guides and recording sheets on their website that you can use to download, um, and you can write in what you've seen, and if you're not sure what you've seen, again, the identification guides are there to help please go and do that it's really um, interesting science that they're doing and they found in one year to another the effects of drought certainly in 2019 um, had a, a big impact on the types of wildflowers that were growing so it would be really interesting to see what's growing this year when we've had the wettest may ever it's actually really important science and it's something that you can do at home uh, in just a couple of minutes
0: Yeah, certainly very verdant out there with all this wet. So I imagine that there'll be a good diversity of flowers as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. The flowers don't really mind if it's a (laughs) a bit miserable out. So you've got until the 31st of May to do this transect. All the links to everything we are talking about in today's episode will be in the show notes.
0: My news is actually technically old, I'd say, just because of the timing of this podcast. So at the beginning of May, and this actually happens every single year, there is something called International Compost Awareness Week. Now, this was started in Canada in 1995, but is now celebrated all across the world. And essentially, the idea of it is just to spread the awareness and also the knowledge and education of the benefits of recycling our organic materials. And by organic materials, they just mean things that used to be alive. So that's all of our prunings and things from the garden, but also our veg peelings, very importantly. Now in the UK, Garden Organic, who we do often talk about, are the official partners with the International Compost Awareness Week. And if you go on their webpages, they've got absolutely loads and loads of information about projects they run. So they actually run this master composter scheme where people can, or organisations can sign up and actually learn so much about composting that they can become sort of the pioneers of it, if you like, for their community, for their school, for their business. And I really like the idea of actually Getting this status, and we'll get the whole of our street composting. That would be
1: my dream. Yeah, they send compost wizards out and around the country, don't Ooh, they?
0: Compost wizard? No, that's a very yeah, good well, idea. Yeah, because compost
1: is magic, isn't it? So. It
0: really is. So, just in summary, why should we all be composting? Because we certainly will be talking about this in most episodes. And actually, we're going to put a fun tally of all the compost bins that we've made through our professional business, because I'm very proud of this fact. We've got lots of new gardens with compost bins, and they've all benefited as well. But yeah, in summary, they add, so composting adds carbon back into the soil when you spread that compost around. It prevents soil erosion by just giving essentially like a blanket over the over the soil just a blanket of organic matter and of course it closes the loop by avoiding the loss of valuable organic resources from your garden so in essence your plants whether that's your herbaceous border or your food will just do better if you put down compost and basically it's just like what how i imagine it is to be just like a concentrated woodland floor if you go into any mature woodland in the UK you'll notice if you just 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 scratch down to the ground a little bit the soil is so so rich because of all those years of just organic matter accumulating and then rotting down and the creatures in in the soil breaking things down so that it already has a natural nutrient cycling capacity so by doing it in our garden rather than just spreading all of our rotting waste over our borders we just put it into a pile it speeds things up and it also makes fantastic habitat for different things like hibernating amphibians and also reptiles you quite often find slow worms in compost heaps because of their warmth and their moistness so in essence they're just really fantastic things to do and by spreading it around your garden you're just going to be promoting healthy soil life Now, very much linked to home composting and things that you and I can do in our own gardens to close that nutrient cycling loop is the issue of using peat in the bag compost that you and I do buy from garden centres. And since our last podcast, on the 18th of May, DEFRA, so that's the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, they released their England Peat Action Plan. Now the headline of this plan is that peat-based garden compost is going to be banned for home use by 2024. Now, just as a recap, why should we be not using peat? Now, peat bogs are valuable habitats. They're home in their own right to a wealth of plants, birds and insects. So, It's a little bit insane for us to be destroying that just to make our gardens a bit prettier. And importantly, in the fight against climate change, they are fantastic stores of carbon and they store three times more carbon than a forest. So this is a really, really welcome ban. We're also really pleased that it's it's basically become mainstream, hasn't it? In the last well, in the last year or so, and Monty Don on Gardeners World was recently recorded saying that digging out peat for use in garden compost is environmental vandalism, which we'd very much agree with, wouldn't we, Ben? Indeed, it is. So, what does this mean for the next three years? Now, Defra has obviously got a lot on its hands, and three years in terms of politics isn't very long. And in that time, there's going to be ongoing consultations. And two of the most critical things that I've picked out from what they're actually going to be consulting on is that they are committing to supporting the ban with also public awareness and education. And they've also said that they're going to make sure that alternatives to PEAT do not have undue environmental footprints of their own, because obviously that's, there's not really much point in replacing it with something that is equally as bad. Now, while we're really, really happy about this ban on the home use of PEAT, what this peat action plan doesn't do is ban it at the horticultural trade level. So it's very likely we'll still be going to garden centres and buying plants that are grown in peat. So really and truly, while the 2024 ban for you and I buying peat is a really good thing, we do need to massively keep up pressure and also really hold DEFRA to account on this ban because we've seen deadline after deadline just slip by and we just can't actually afford to let that happen again. So yeah, keep watching this space. And in the meantime, all of us home gardeners can make the really easy transition to buying peat-free compost from today or even yesterday, even better
1: yes it is really important stop using peat and if you want to know what peat bogs are supposed to look like then i would really recommend watching a quite recent episode of gardener's world it's episode nine and about halfway through the show ari anderson um, interviewed somebody on a cumbrian nature reserve which is a lowland raised peat bog and it was just fantastic to see the the diversity of plants and how beautiful these peat bogs are supposed to be and when we talk about peat bogs often people have in their mind uh, the degraded bogs that we have all over the uk and actually when they're in good condition they are absolutely stunning habitats so yeah if you want to know what they're supposed to look like go ahead and watch that episode so before we go on to our topic for today there's a little botanical horticultural mystery that i think we need to investigate Now, in a previous episode, we talked about the fact that lesser celandine closes up when it's foul weather out. So, if it's grey and rainy, as it's been all of May, (laughs) some of the flowers, the wildflowers in our gardens, they actually close their petals up.
0: Daisies do this. Indeed. We saw it at the weekend. None of them bothered to open up. It was so grey outside.
1: Yeah that's right and um, we took a photo which we'll put on Facebook and Twitter of closed up daisies so you can see what we mean. Since I read about Selandine doing this and we started to notice it in gardens I've wanted to know if there's a, a botanical term for this. So I've looked high and low and I just can't find anything and I've asked on Twitter and on Facebook as well and I've not got the correct answer. So the mystery is is there a botanical or horticultural term for flowers that open in the day but then temporarily close their petals or close their leaves when the weather is really bad
0: i'd also like to know why they do it because yes. we hypothesize when we were out walking that it might just be to protect the pollen that's yeah. actually contained within the center of the flower that's complete speculation though
1: don't quote me on that that's right well we thought <laughs> maybe the pollen would just be washed off the stamen or something like that we really aren't sure but there are lots of horticultural terms out there for similar things and one of them is heliotropism and that's when plants point towards the light, or more properly, it's actually when plants grow towards a light stimulus, and it's also called phototropism. So I tried putting that online and looking at similar terms, and and nothing was quite right. So some listeners have actually written in with suggestions. Um, A friend of the show, Caroline Boscher, um, suggested dianality, Um, but that actually just describes the general process of plants and animals being active during the daytime. Another friend of the show, Jay, on Twitter suggested, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, but it's nyctinasty, I think. And nyctinasty is a, a botanical term that I wasn't aware of, but it means when plants change in response to darkness. So sometimes at night, plants actually close up either their leaves or their flowers as well. And sometimes people just call this plants going to sleep, basically. But this isn't just because it's dark, it's to do with the time of day. So plants that exhibit this um, nictinasty don't close up when it's daytime, but it's just dark out, and that's what we're trying to find the term for. So if anybody out there knows, we would really, really like to know. So if you know of a term that describes plants, that the flowers or the leaves close up when it's miserable weather please do write in and let us know.
0: And if there is no word, which is highly, highly unlikely, because botany is named literally everything, um, maybe we get the opportunity to name it ourselves.
1: Benotropism. Oh,
0: no. Yeah, I got there
1: first.
0: <laughs> to be fair, you're doing all the work in trying to find the word, yeah. so i let you... <laughs> right, so now coming out of that super mysterious music, then it's a good time for me just to put out a little reminder that we have a GoFundMe page called Get the Wildlife Podcast Some Gear. And basically what we said in previous episodes, we're not trying to make money from this podcast, but we are trying to just cover our costs. And all the things like that music and also the equipment we've bought to particularly go out and do interviews has obviously cost us a little bit of money. So we'd be extremely grateful if you would like to make a donation And just on that note, we are actually a third of the way to our target and we will be thanking all the latest donors in the next episode. So if you do want your five seconds of fame on a moderately successful niche podcast about plants, (laughs) then now is the time to donate. Thank you very much in advance. So let's move on to our topic of the week. Ben, what is the topic of this week?
1: We are talking biological controls. To set the scene for this topic, we're talking about dealing with garden pests, basically, and we've talked about that in a previous episode more generally. It's worth saying before we begin, though, that something is only a pest if it bothers us in some way. We should be really careful to remember that every species has its place, and we would only call something a pest if its population were exceptionally large, If it's causing a great deal of damage to something we're trying to grow and where the damage is significantly impacting the plant. So the difference between those is that you might have a tree, an oak tree, with tens of thousands of little sap-sucking insects on it, but that's not hurting the tree at all. So the fact that there's a large population of something doesn't mean it's a pest. On the other hand, an unchecked slug or snail population can quite easily destroy your entire salad crop. I'd also
0: say that this population imbalance, I think you could probably call it, really only comes about if you haven't got a really developed ecosystem in your garden.
1: Yes, that's right. So if you do have a problem in your garden, it might just well go away if you wait and don't panic, because all the other creatures in your garden might be predating on these things that could become a pest. So if the problem doesn't go away, the first thing is to improve the variety of habitats in your garden. Um, So that might be planting more plants, having lots of different things like places for beetles to hide, hibernaculums for the frogs and toads, because those are the natural predators for many of the things that are going to cause a problem in your garden. Even hedgehog houses, because hedgehogs are absolutely fantastic predators of some of these pests. But if you do suffer with a particular pest then you might have heard of a group of products called biological controls and these are supposed to deal with a variety of different pests from slugs to snails ants to aphids in a wildlife friendly way and essentially what these do is to introduce a living species into your garden which controls a pest of some sort and most of these biological controls are a predator a parasite or a parasitoid or more rarely, they can be a bacteria or a fungus. So it's some sort of product that you're buying to apply in your garden.
0: Yeah, the biological part just refers to the fact that what you're actually putting down is alive, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So so to distinguish the first three of those, predators actually eat things as food and they dispatch their prey immediately in the process. So a classic example would be the two-spot ladybird that we already just um, mentioned earlier um that's adelia bipunctata, the latin name both the adults and the larvae of that particular ladybird eat aphids
0: and a lot of them yeah hundreds
1: <laughs> and hundreds over their life parasites on the other hand live off their host so you might think of things like ticks or fleas and sometimes they can transmit diseases which kill the host and they can also just sap the host of so much energy that they just sort of give up but usually parasites are not in the business of killing their host because they're relying on that host to be alive to provide them with food lastly though there are the parasitoids and this distinction between parasites and parasitoids is something i hadn't really clocked until i was doing the research for this parasitoids don't immediately kill their host like a predator. Instead, they feed on a living host and kill them in the process. So they definitely want to kill their host. They're not like a parasite who is relying on the host being alive. And some of the most gruesome of the biological controls and some of the most gruesome interactions that are going on in your garden right under your nose are parasitoids like some of the wasp and fly species. And they actually often inject their eggs into living hosts like leafhoppers, spiders, woodlice even, and the eggs then hatch inside their body into little pupa which, con- <laughs> which consume the host from the inside out.
0: Yeah, think alien. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. <laughs> it's yeah. a
0: bug-eat-bug bug world out there
1: oh nice phrase yeah (laughs) and yeah i mean parasitoid wasps are just completely nuts we actually read in oh it was it the rspb magazine Yeah. yeah about some of these parasitoid wasps where first of all you get second and third order parasitoids so it's like russian dolls where you get a a parasite enters the body of something and then something parasitizes the parasitoid and it just goes like russian dolls all the way in but also some parasitoid wasps when they lay their eggs some eggs turn into larvae that are going to become adults and some eggs turn into little soldier wasps that just protect the other larvae from other, other parasitoids, parasitoids coming in and laying eggs in the same body so Oh, it's just absolutely incredible what is going on. If only on.
0: we could just shrink ourselves down. This safari would be any like South African safari, I think. Don't yeah, you that's think? that's right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We
0: need a honey I shrunk the kids type scenario. Oh, that would be great, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it
1: would be like a, a rated 18, wouldn't it? Cause it it'd would. So,
0: it would also be so ter- brutal. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, in a wildlife garden then, we hope to have predators, parasites, parasitoids all doing their work right in front of our eyes helping to prevent one species of potential pest ever overrunning the whole garden but as i've described if your garden is lacking in this species some can be bought as biological controls and what we want to know is whether the things that you buy are worth the money whether they work because they can be quite expensive and also if they are safe and we should always be wary like nearly every um pesticide bottle not all the things that you buy in the garden center are safe just because they're there for sale
0: no can i just why you mention pesticides obviously we are organic gardeners so we absolutely do not use pesticides but just in ben talking about the complexity of like the russian dolls of parasitoids when we pick up a pesticide bottle to get rid of for example the aphids the things that we can see we get completely ignoring all of those layers and so so much complexity underneath that and just killing off everything so that is just basically why we don't do it
1: yeah in a nutshell you're yeah, making the
0: problem worse essentially
1: yeah there are lots of biological controls that have been developed for what is called protected cultivation and that just means cultivating things indoors so that's either in a greenhouse or in a polytunnel and we can't go into every species but there are a number of these controls for greenhouse pests like mealybug red spider mite and glasshouse whitefly that can be bought commercially and these really do work. However, there is a risk that some of these species could in themselves become invasive, as many are not native to the UK. Thankfully, most are unable to complete their full life cycle outside in the UK, so they're unlikely to become invasive in the countryside. An example of this would be the mealybug ladybird, which is often recommended for dealing with, surprise surprise, mealybugs. But it's actually an Australian native ladybird, so you might be quite wary of introducing something like this into the wider environment but basically they can't survive more than 24 days below five degrees and when frosts come they will get killed off as well
0: which i think is
1: quite cruel well i mean the idea of having them in a protected cultivation is that they can't escape
0: mm, okay. so
1: they tend to stick around in that area So while there is always a chance of one of these species escaping we would always recommend first trying to control pests with cultural or physical methods especially in greenhouses so that's things like keeping them clean we talked with Gareth in a previous episode who grows salad in a greenhouse and he makes sure there's no um, little nooks and crannies that slugs and snails can hide in because they'll just creep out at night and eat your crops also watering correctly to make sure things like fungus gnats don't breed in the soil you could also very carefully use a soap-based spray on your plant's if necessary to deal with uh, to deal with aphids and meaty bugs things like that but pesticides whether they are labeled organic or not are always a bad idea so just because uh, a bottle of pesticide being sold in the supermarket says organic on the label it does not mean it's safe and we will cover this in a future episode because people just see the word organic and they think that means safe and it is absolutely not true so we will link to an RHS article which will give you details on exactly what control you need for each greenhouse pest but outside growing is a completely different cut of the fish firstly we wouldn't trust anybody trying to sell you ladybirds or lace wings or the like for outside use basically because you open the packet And they bugger off.
0: Yeah, they haven't invented tiny little leashes for them yet. (laughs) No.
1: So people sell you these products and they're just as likely to disappear next door as they are to solve any problem in your own garden. So really just don't bother with them, even the safe native species. And we say safe native species, but it's quite an unregulated industry and you don't know where these are actually coming from. Quite often a lot of the breeding programs might be abroad. And I might be importing some of these insects. Well, that's
0: absolutely blown my mind. I did not know that before. That yeah, seems completely mad. And yeah. we're just trying to tighten, yeah, plant passporting and things like that. But And yet you can buy ladybirds just in a box.
1: Yeah, I don't know what the situation is now in the last couple of months since Brexit. So mm-hmm. I'm going to qualify that. But certainly before you know january you could be importing uh, ladybirds and other things from other eu countries in particular
0: it's like whack-a-mole isn't it yeah. trying to sort these things
1: out yeah because ah. well, the thing is even if it's the same native species when you're importing them from outside there's every chance that they could come in with some sort of fungal or bacterial mm. pathogen so we really don't want to be using those sorts of products and also don't be tempted to use indoor controls outside just because they attack similar species so something like the parasitic wasp and formosa um, is also it is often recommended for dealing with glasshouse whitefly but then you hear people recommending it also for cabbage white fly outside and again we really would not recommend that first of all it'll be useless because you're never going to get the concentration needed to deal with the problems so they'll just clear off into the environment but it's always better i think to apply what we call the precautionary principle which is you don't want to be releasing non-native species outside in the uk if you can avoid it more commonly though you'll hear about nematodes
0: ah the wonderful nematodes yes
1: and these are used to control things like slugs fine weevil ants uh, leather jackets in lawns which are the larvae of the crane fly which most of you probably know as daddy long legs as well and there are several companies that sell different mixes of these nematodes generally from three different genera so these are the heterorhabditis the stein anema, and the phasma oh i was doing so well there the Phasmahabditis genera <laughs> But, in general, nematodes are a quite a broad group of small worm like creatures sometimes called round worms or earworms too and most of these species are no longer than about one millimeters long when they 're an adult, and some are too small for the naked eye. But as a fun fact, there's actually a record of a species called Placentonema gigantissima, which is supposed to grow to over nine metres long in the reproductive tract and placenta of sperm whales.
0: Don't think you're going to find many of those in your garden. No.
1: (laughs) But... God, yeah. We actually recommended nematodes to one of our customers once, who then googled nematodes and found some of the nematodes that are parasitic on humans. So, <laughs> if you Google nematodes, worried, didn't yeah, she? I think... she panicked and said, "What are you doing?" I God, um, yeah. Google nematodes; and they're absolutely fantastically interesting in their own right. But yeah, don't be scared for the, by the handful of human parasites. The one we use in gardens are a different species. So the way nematodes work is that they enter the bodies of species like slugs or vine weevils through, I'm just going to put various orifices here. Mm. (laughs) And once inside, they release bacteria, which kill the host usually within about 24 to 48 hours. They then feed on the insides of the host and breed rapidly before they spread out into the surrounding soil. And when they come as garden products, they're usually in a powder form. They can come refrigerated if they're live, or they can be desiccated. And you just mix them with water and you water them onto your plants and into your pots and borders. So again, we want to know if these work and whether they're safe. Now, the picture is actually quite complicated. I ignored the marketing information of some of the companies trying to sell you these things and went back to the, um, the research or at least the research that I could find. And the certainly the nematodes for slugs are probably effective in most situations. Now, some lab studies have found near 100% effectiveness at preventing slugs from eating lettuces because A, they reduce the slug numbers, but also slugs that are infected with nematodes just tend to crawl away to die and don't actually eat things in the process. On the other hand, lots of other studies have shown no protective effect at all. For vine weevil, another um, pest that people often recommend nematodes for, the picture is the same, with some formulations only reducing vine weevil numbers by about 25%, and in other studies showing a 90% reduction. And one thing that came out of these studies is that local conditions change how effective they are. So for instance, for a vine weevil treatment, and people often use vine weevil treatments in pots in particular because if you've got potted strawberries hookahers things like uh hostas as well they really love what what the weevils do is their their larvae eat the roots of plants and you tend not to notice until you touch the plant and the whole crown comes off because the roots have disappeared
0: we've decided to call heuchera which is just a very nice uh, foliage plant for herbaceous border vine weevil food because yeah. we've lost so many of these to vine weevils this year and they they do lay their eggs i think late summer and then the larvae hatch and then in spring they absolutely just munch through all the roots so this poor plant just sits there with nothing underneath the soil yeah, and then right. just collapses
1: yeah so they they can be a pest in uh, a garden situation But one paper showed that in peat-based compost, boo peat, um, they actually allowed the nematodes to move more freely, Um, whereas in a coir-based compost, which had a coarser texture, they were significantly less dispersed two weeks after application, and the RHS also suggests that nematodes will be more effective in lighter, sandier soil than in heavier clay soil. So The effectiveness of the products that you're using will really depend on the local conditions. And yes, you can um, do a replicable study in a lab. But when it comes to actually applying something in a garden, um, it might not necessarily work as expected because there's all these other externalities, these external um, variables that you can't control for so in another study uh, the effectiveness of nematodes for vine weevil was radically improved if you can store them at exactly nine degrees for three to six weeks before application whereas in other studies the effectiveness range was between five and 15 degrees and i also know from talking to somebody involved in nematode research privately that during the quality control they were running when setting up a study they actually found many of the packs of nematodes just to be dead on arrival And actually, the same is true of a lot of these um, mycorrhizal products, the supposedly beneficial fungi. Um, A lot of them sit on just shelves in the garden centres and they die in the process of waiting. And you can tell how long they've been there by basically the thickness of the dust on the packet.
0: Yeah, can I just interject there? So just going back to what I said a few minutes ago, these biological controls are alive. And so things like the, the vine weevil, it is really important to treat them as living things so as ben just said keeping them at the right temperature before you actually are able to apply them is super important basically because while okay so if you bought them from a garden center let's assume they're actually alive and you've picked up a fresh packet but there's no point in bringing it home and sticking it on a windowsill at 24 degrees celsius before putting them in because you're probably just going to kill them off so you're basically just wasting money but also treating them really badly
1: yes that's right so even some of the products which are desiccated still only have a shelf life of around six months. And we've seen particularly um, the slug treatments, basically them in the bargain basement bin, haven't we? Mm. You know, piled high. And they must have been on the shelves for two years, something like that. They will be dead when you're buying them. So there's just absolutely no point.
0: I've got a Monty Python sketch in my head now. The dead parrot. <laughs> you know, when he goes into the pet shop and he's like, that parrot's dead. Oh, yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, moving on.
1: Right. <laughs> So whether they're effective or not in the lab doesn't necessarily translate to whether they work in your garden. There is also some concern that using nematodes as a controlling commercial horticulture on plants that can be then transported abroad may well be releasing non-native nematodes into different environments. And I read one paper that gave evidence that a nematode called Phasmahobditis hermaphrodita has been found as an invasive species in both America and in New Zealand. And these might not be a problem at all. We might just not have found those nematodes yet. So they might be native to those areas. We've just never noticed them yet. Or they could be invasive. And basically, we just don't know if these are going to be a problem or not. So we certainly say to any listeners, we've got actually surprisingly a high amount of listeners in Canada and the US, don't be buying these products online and getting them shipped over there because you only want to be using biological controls that are licensed for use in your own country. So. Given all that, do we recommend using biological controls? Well, considering they are quite expensive and certainly variable in their effectiveness, they aren't something that we regularly use anymore and we were using them more often before. When it comes to things like aphids, slugs and snails or caterpillar pests, the best answer is always just to make your garden better for wildlife, isn't it really?
0: Mm, Definitely. If you see a lot of those things as food for other things, then it completely switches your perception of them as a problem we've had sparrows picking off aphids from the rose just outside our kitchen window
1: yeah you know thrushes will come and eat your snails all you need to do is leave out a rock which they call a thrush anvil because they then break them open and eat them and as we described with our last episode on nettles there's one parasitic wasp, I think it's called Diglyphus I I'll have to go back and check the latin for that, but you can buy it for 35 pounds a pop online as a biological control, but it's also one of the um probable um pollinators visitors to nettle, so you know, just have a small nettle patch if you if you want. And that will deal with things like chrysanthemum leaf miner and some of the leaf miners on your tomatoes. So a lot of these predators, particularly the ladybirds and the lace wings, will just be present in your garden if you garden organically and for wildlife and you don't have to spend a penny to do that the same applies to hoverflies actually as well for which half of the uk species feed on aphids Mm. you know and the rove beetles some of the ground beetles that ellie described you know we could go on with a list but all of these will be in a in a well-managed garden
0: i think my favorite thing to have learned this year was from jules howard's pond book where i talked about pied wagtails picking off mosquitoes as they emerge from the top of a pond that has just blown my mind i've told everyone about that since that is nice there's yeah. so many things that as gardeners like we all know about the hoverflies and the ladybirds and why they're good but yeah i think it's just so much more complex than we could ever really uh ever really appreciate without being full-on ecologists
1: so after you've improved your garden for wildlife which will also have the benefit of controlling some of these things then try cultural or physical methods of control so that seems like cleaning your greenhouses in winter netting things things like the carrot root fly if you um have a it's just a, it's barrier, about, a like barrier a barrier it's yeah. about 30 centimeter 45 mm. centimeter high barrier of Mesh, which is a, just a really fine mesh the carrot root fly can't actually fly over it so some of these physical controls are the next best thing you can do. When it comes to slugs and snails, we actually hand pick them. We've got a small garden, Aww. so we can hand pick them
0: on the you know three days that have been warm enough for slugs and snails to emerge this year i've really enjoyed going out there with my my marigolds and my head torch and my big bucket and i basically just put them all in and then when the bucket's full we don't we don't leave them in there that would just be very mean we just take them out into the countryside and release them yeah it it works really well yeah oh actually one of my favorite things that you did ben this year is uh well it was actually vine weevil larvae i don't know if they just particularly enjoyed the weather this year but we hand we were potting on a plant i think it probably it was a hooker and found loads and loads of vine weevil. I basically put them onto like a sheet and collected them up, fully expecting just to throw them away to for the birds in that particular place. And Ben decided to wrap them up and put in his put them in his pocket and bring them home for our birds. So yeah, that was, was like of, an eight
1: year old scout with
0: thank God pockets you didn't, full of
1: wildlife.
0: <laughs> thank God you didn't forget about them and then put those through the washing oh. machine. <laughs>
1: but, yeah, but again, you know, if you if you find these pests you know leave them out for the birds because especially at this time of year absolutely
0: love them yeah yeah
1: and uh yeah and with aphids we always recommend just jetting them off with a with a blast of water from a hose as well that does the job as well so these physical and cultural methods are the second best thing that you can do only after that would we recommend using nematodes and you will find them more effective for potted plants because the concentration will remain high Whereas if you're just pouring them onto the soil, generally, uh, the concentrations will be more distributed.
0: Yes, and I've seen that as well. If you've got a really tiny garden, the things like the slug and snail nematodes might be effective. But you've always, you've always got a boundary, haven't you? So they can literally just come in from neighbouring gardens. So I wouldn't necessarily uh, recommend going out and buying hundreds of pounds worth of nemaslug slug um, if you've got a big garden in particular.
1: The other thing to remember is these might not work and busting the myth of some of the um, marketing around some of these garden products is going to be a a big part of our podcast in the future because you know things like the 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 fungal additives to soil as well they're really the evidence that these things work is very very contested it's
0: it's just in its infancy that's where where we're at but then the nature of obviously a business trying to make money for something is to market it as a the solution that everyone should buy and i think we just need to well hopefully with this podcast and us reading the actual science we're trying to just give the balanced view on these things
1: yeah that's right so save you some money because they are expensive and because they might not work certainly professionally we only recommend them to people who have got the spare cash who are prepared to try try. something just in case it does it does help certainly they are more effective in ideal conditions but like i say um You know, they might just not work because of the conditions in your garden. And finally, one thing to remember, particularly with slugs, is that only a handful of the 40 or so native species are actually significant garden pests. Most aren't causing any trouble whatsoever. And some of them are really important, especially in your compost bin, for recycling and breaking down the stuff that you're chucking in there. You know some exclusively dead plant material others just eat fungus others just eat mosses some slugs actually prey on other slug species um, so they can actually be beneficial predators in their own right so only use these products as a last resort because slugs are not your enemy they should be your friends and I will link to a really really good document by I think it was the Bedfordshire Wildlife Trust which gives a description of all the native slugs in the country so learn more about them instead of killing them would be my final piece of advice
0: i think we've got three catchphrases now ben i think we've got don't panic that's taken from somewhere else there's plant, plant, more, plants, pl- plant more plants or life begets life that's that was yours wasn't it yeah and yeah. also now it's a bug eat bug world out there yeah very good yeah nice so that concludes this podcast topic Thank you very much, Ben. And basically, I just wanted to say it'd be really, really nice to hear from you all. We've we've started amassing some questions. Basically, people have uh, have been getting in touch via Facebook and Twitter, and. We've said that when we get to 20 questions, we're actually going to do a and a session on this podcast. So please do get in touch. If we get a lot, then we might just do a and a session each podcast. And I just also want to say that we've had a lovely handwritten note from a friend of the show, Sharon Maxwell. So thank you very much, Sharon Maxwell really really nice to receive a handwritten letter isn't it
1: yeah yeah it's yeah. really lovely
0: you set the benchmark high, sharon um but if you do want to get in touch then there is also the email option and that is the wildlife at hotmail.com so that's facebook twitter or email please ask us questions and let us know how you're getting on and i'd also like to just do a bit of a shout out for wendy lord who got in touch with us via twitter to show off her rather beautiful specimen of Silene nutans which is a Nottingham catchfly which we covered in a previous episode. Really absolutely beautiful plant you've got there Wendy so thank you very much for showing that and it's really nice to know that people are out there growing the things that we're suggesting as well.
1: Yeah and she had a much nicer photo than we could find online of the plant and it makes it seem like a it's a much more beautiful garden plant than I we could find uh, an example for. I <laughs> justice
0: in my description. So yeah, sorry, Nottingham Catchfly. She's
1: just grown it very well.
0: Oh yeah, beautiful. Absolutely wonderful. That moves us neatly onto this week's Plant of the Week. I should say Native Plant of the Week. And this week we decided on Anthriscus sylvestris, which is the cow parsley. And that is because it is absolutely unavoidable, I'd say, to see it at this time of year. It is absolutely everywhere and looking fantastic. Now, sylvestris means of woods or growing wild, and that counts for any plant where you see that term. And in the UK, it is the commonest of all the white hedgebank parsleys. It's also the earliest to flower, so it's flowering all through May and you You'll see it everywhere. It's frothy and loose, white umbels of flowers. And by umbels, we just mean heads of multiple tiny flowers. And if you actually look at the cow parsley, each flower is about three to six millimetres across and they're each of them held on separate flower stalks and they're all next to each other, and they make a sort of umbrella, which can be up to 20 centimetres across. So they, you know, on aggregate look really fantastic.
1: Yeah, they're called a compound flower, aren't they? Where you get all these flowers together.
0: Indeed. And this is very, very typical of the APAC family. So this is the plant family APAC, which is absolutely massive and contains over 3000 species. Now, I say if you come across, but I'm going to say when you come across an, a huge area of cow parsley, you can actually smell the scent of it. And I did this yesterday when I went for my vaccination. Oh, I've been vaccinated, by the way. There was a big stand of it in the area where I had to go. And I just thought, I'm going to go ahead and smell
1: it. You must have been the only person in the queue sniffing the cow parsley, I think.
0: I'm used to being the odd one out. It's fine. (laughs) And I'd say that even if you are not conscious of smelling it, it is just everywhere. The scent is all throughout the air across the UK at this time of year. And when you actually smell the flower up close, you realise this and it is the smell of spring, I'd say. Now, if you look closely at the umbel, you'll see that the outer flowers, so the the actual tiny flowers that is making up that umbel, have petals which have different sizes. And you'll see each flower has five petals in total. Under the flowers are these small bracteoles, which is just, it's just basically a leaf-like structure. And it's found where the flower stem meets the main stem. The leaves of cow parsley are finely divided in toothed segments and I'd say they look quite fern-like.
1: Yeah, like a lot of the, well, they all look pretty much the same, don't they? Of quite similar, the uh, yeah, the really divided family. leaves. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: right. And the leaves come from a hairless stem and they're quite magnificent plants, really. They they reach anywhere between 60 and 120 centimetres tall. And another feature of the APAC family is this long taproot. Of course, the carrot is what we eat and that is in the same family and that long taproot just enables the plant to have the stability that it needs to stand upright and it also allows for perination which means it can survive from one year into the next uh, just like an energy store basically in one paper i read i have seen that this taproot can be up to two meters long but thankfully when i have been digging up cow parsley in various places uh, i'm pleased to say that i have not found one that is two meters long because that's quite
1: <laughs> that's quite large I think that's like the two metre long carrots you get at these county fairs.
0: Indeed. Probably show, grown in a... Um, show parsley. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cow parsley is its common and, i say very unpretentious name, but other names include, this is a long list, Queen Anne's Lace, Lady's Lace, Fairy Lace, Spanish Lace, Mother Die, Mummy <laughs> Die, yeah, they vary in uh, in niceness, I'd say, Stepmother, Grandpa's Pepper, Hedge Parsley, Rabbit Meat bad man's oatmeal, adder's meat, devil's meat, kek's, keksi and kek. That's a lot of names. But yeah, so they say cow parsley is the one that I think
1: is the most common. And I like bad man's oatmeal. Yeah, I
0: do like that one as well. But cow parsley refers basically to its status as an inferior version of real parsley because it's in the same family. And when it's young and I have to very much say properly identified its leaves can be used as a mildly aromatic addition to salads and omelets now you some- should
1: say more about that because the apac family are the most easily confused of all plants and there are some full-on deadly <laughs> well yes plants.
0: and i was about to come on to that but i will say it now the less pretty name of mother's die or mummy's die apparently came with the tagline that if you picked it, your mother would die. And it's thought that that was simply a warning to possibly children that you just shouldn't pick it at all because in the umbilifera family, which is the Apiaceae family, the two names are synonymous And it is a real mixture of extremely poisonous and deadly plants, but also edible plants. And it is extremely tricksy. They're very, very hard to tell apart unless you really know what you're looking for. So I think as a mum, it was just easier to say, don't pick it, kids. Yeah,
1: that's right. And
0: I'm going to say that to all of you listeners as well, unless you really know what you're doing. Because I absolutely do not want to be responsible for killing people with an omelette.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, hemlock is... It is another one in the same species and can look very similar.
0: I've been digging up some hemlock this week, actually. Yeah, it it looks basically exactly the same. Now, the second most popular name, Queen Anne's lace, is a lot prettier and has some interesting potential origins. And it was said that when Queen Anne travelled the countryside in May, that the streets had been decorated for her because of how common this plant is. And that also the leaves mimicked the fine lace that she wore. Now, this isn't completely confirmed and that name could actually be an import from North America. So, hi, Americans. Uh, you may well know it as that. And we're that's, big in
1: Minnesota.
0: We're big in Minnesota, yeah. So I'm, I'm just giving you a bit of a shout out. But yeah, actually, this is a bad thing because cow parsley or Queen Anne's Lace is naturalised but is rather invasive in North America. It just seems to love the conditions and has actually been classed as a noxious weed in some places, including Washington and also Gray County in Ontario.
1: Okay, so don't don't grow this, Americans and Canadian listeners.
0: No, not why your your, uh, states are trying to eradicate it. No, probably not a good idea.
1: No, it's so funny that some of the things like purple loosestrife that we covered in a previous episode and uh, hedge garlic as well is another one that is just, you know, grows perfectly nicely, wafty little hedgerow plant in the UK. And as soon as it went over to North America, it just took over.
0: Yeah, sorry, guys. And just as a final folklore history point, I just say that country children used to make pea shooters of the hollow stems isn't that nice and also cattle and rabbits love to eat it so people used to collect it up for their livestock and also their rabbits but that's enough of that fluffy stuff we want to move on to the sexual antics of cow parsley now cow parsley is botanical klaxon warning Andromonoecious. Oh, that's a nice one. And as we've seen before, monoecious means one house. And that means you get male and female flowers on the same plant. And in some cases, those flowers can be hermaphrodite, where both the male and female parts are in the same flower. Andromonoecious in the cow parsley refers to the fact that you have some all male flowers and you have some hermaphrodite flowers all on the same plant. Now, in the case of the hermaphrodite flowers, where you've got both male and female parts, they are what is known as protandrous, and we've seen that word before. And that just means that the male stamens, which contain all the pollen, emerge or mature first, like we saw actually on the Nottingham catfish, Silene nutans. However, flowers with both mature stamens or mature pistils, so which is the female part of the flower, can be found in the same umbel or collection of flowers at the same time, generally speaking, the outer flowers in an, um, an umbel are hermaphrodite and mature earlier than the central, usually male-only flowers.
1: Oh, that's interesting because the flowers at the outside are a slightly different size to the ones on the inside as well.
0: Yeah, so maybe they just need to be bigger to actually fit all those different sexual Sexy parts bits in. in. Cow parsley is insect pollinated, and as I will go into in a bit there are a lot of insects that visit this flower. It's a really, really lovely resource for, for various species. In comprising of a lot of small, very simple flowers with flat heads, it does mean that the cow parsley doesn't actually rely on specialist mouth parts. For example, as we've seen before, the long tongues of some of our bumblebees for pollination. So it, it really does attract in so many generalist species, as well as some bumblebees as well, but it, it's not exclusive basically it's a bit of a buffet for a lot of different things
1: yeah so some things like the uh the hoverflies they, oh, they just sort of dab, dab, dab yeah. the surface so they can't find their way into these deeper tubed flowers but when you've got all of them in one flat plane all of those and flies lots of different fly species as well yeah and um, can all collect the nectar
0: Now, when it's successfully pollinated, the fruits, which is the seed, mature over around June and July, and then the flowering stalks that those flowers are on, senesce, and that is just a fancy way to say, die, (laughs) slowly. When they're brown, some will topple over, spilling the ripe seed, but you can also see stands of cow parsley that, that actually persist all the way into winter, and they can look really nice with frost on them, if you get that there can be anywhere from 800 seeds per plant so that gives you an indication as to how uh, this this stuff spreads and and why we have so much of it in the countryside it's been found in lab testing that is about a viability of about 79% so of those for example 800 seeds 79% of them will be viable if the plant has been pollinated and germination happens in spring, and that requires a period of vernalization. As I've said before in previous episodes, that just is another fancy term to say. The seeds need to have a cold snap. And in the case of cow parsley, that's three months at or below five degrees. Once germinated, the vegetative growth, so that's...
1: The green bits.
0: The green bits, thanks Ben, is actually very, very slow compared to the growth of that taproot that may or may not reach two metres... And that's because the taproot in this particular plant is what's needed as an energy store because cow parsley on the whole is known as a biennial. So what happens, you get germination in spring, that taproot really does develop over that following year. It enables the plant then to overwinter because it's got that store of energy, which is just ready for it to then start growing the following spring, which is when it should then start to flower. However, I will say, just to add a bit of confusion, because we do like that, that there is actually quite a lot of variation and it depends very much on a little bit of genetics, but also on soil conditions. And there have been examples where some cow passes have been shown to be annual. So growing up in the same year and flowering in the same year, sorry. The biennial, like I just said, where it grows one year and then flowers the second year or even a short lived perennial. On the whole, though, it is usually monocarpic and that just means once flowering basically it only flowers and fruits just once and after that the plant should die back
1: yeah so it doesn't matter how long it's lived for it might have lived for 2 or 3 years maybe even 3 had or 4 of in leaves a rare growing. Yeah, yeah in a rare instance but even if it's lived for 3 or 4 years as soon as it flowers it dies
0: that's it so as i said that root that grows in the first year is very much an energy store which then enables this rapid growth in the second year and it does overwinter as a root with what is known as a cordex which is just basically the growing tip of the root which is just above the surface or at the surface of the soil as well as the sexual reproduction which requires the successful pollination of flowers by insects cow parsley can also reproduce asexually or vegetatively and that is through the production of side rosettes And that happens in what is known as the leaf axis of that cordex, which is the top of the taproot. So you can, in some cases, actually form little plantlets, which can, in their own right, produce their own taproot and sort of detach from the parent plant. And actually, in one population, it has been found that 79% of plants were from vegetative reproduction and just 21% from seed. And it's also been found that if it's cut, so if you actually took maybe a scythe, if you want to go really old fashioned, or just a pair of secateurs to the plant, before it reaches its mature height, this, those side shoots are actually stimulated. And That's I'd really say-
1: interesting. I've never seen, I've seen this with foxgloves, mm. which can produce rosettes and detach from the bottom, which are also a biennial plant. But I've never actually seen that with um, cow parsley. I'll have to look closer.
0: Mm, There is one garden that we have a big stand of cow parsley in, which, I mean, it looks absolutely brilliant. I've shared it on Facebook on our business page just this week. Uh, I think I'm going to have to look more closely at that because I I wouldn't be surprised if some of that's vegetatively reproduced. Yeah. But yeah, the seed reproduction, so sexual reproduction, is actually favoured in more disturbed ground. So you're more likely to find that if you dig up all your cow parsley and then bring all that nice seed to the surface and then it might just then germinate. So sexual and asexual reproduction aside, do we want this in our gardens? And just in case I I don't give it enough credit I just want to reiterate how beautiful this plant is these frothy white umbels of flowers at sort of you know a meter and a half high make really really fantastic backdrops for anything else you want to grow in in the foreground in your in your herbaceous borders and they just look fantastic and as I said smell great as well
1: yeah and are in about 90 percent of Chelsea flower show gardens which is normally held at this time of year
0: yeah and while we're always trying to get people To grow native plants for the insects in their garden. I'd also say they do make really great cut flowers. So if you had a big stand of them, then it's worth growing some just to bring into the house because they you know, you can spend a fortune on cut flowers, especially for that frothy backdrop that people often look for. And the cow parsley really persists well in a vase. I think it lasts over a week, which is quite rare, I think, for well it's what people look for, isn't it? In a cut flower. That's great. And it is also really, really easy, as I'll go into now. In terms of the cultivation, it's a hardy native plant, as you'd expect, as it grows everywhere in the UK, and it does grow in a huge variety of places. It is therefore also tolerant of a wide range of conditions, except, I would add, extremely wet and very, very dry places. In fact, if you do have some growing in a particularly dry area, it can be prone to powdery mildew, which is very symptomatic of of a it being too dry for a plant it does love the dappled shade of woodland and also beneath a hedge but also you'll see it and this is probably where most people will recognize it from now it does grow on sunny roadside verges and embankments up and down the country as i say it's generally not that fussy basically On the whole in the countryside it is doing really really well as a species and that is also in part because of our the way we manage our countryside so it enjoys nutrient-rich ground as we saw with the nettle so all these fertilizers that we've gradually been putting across our countryside really favor the cow parsley and out in the wild it actually can be shown to outcompete some more of the delicate species but in a garden setting that probably isn't going to be the case because obviously it's a much more controlled environment it likes pretty much all soil so if you've got sandy clay loamy or even peaty soil at home it will very much grow and it's not too fussy on the ph either so as with other species that we've suggested you can buy it as a plug from various wildflower nurseries you can also buy it as seed and sow it yourself and I recommend doing that in autumn so that you then get that vernalization or that cold snap that the seed needs to germinate the following spring and once you've got it it really is very simple because as we said it's quite a successful plant The beauty of cow parsley, like lots of wildflowers, is that it looks great when it's en masse. So if you've got like an area where you can let it self-seed naturally, that's absolutely brilliant. If that makes you a bit nervous just to let it run rampant in that area, because as I say, it does have a lot of seed, then it is also possible to, when the seeds are just coming into ripeness at the end of maybe
1: June. When they're going brown, basically. When they're going
0: brown, just chop the, the seed heads off, deadhead them effectively, and you can collect that seed and then sow it that autumn if you've kept the seed in a sort of cool and dry environment
1: yeah and then you can just put it where you want it can't you
0: exactly and people really have recognized how great this plant is in a garden setting because there's a cultivar called anthriscus raven's wing which we've put in gardens as well and this form basically has dark purple leaves. It looks really dramatic when you've got other lighter green-leaved plants around it. And also the white umbels really sort of stand out against those darker leaves. It's a really, really beautiful plant. So we'll, we'll link to that in our show notes for sure. And if you let that cultivar go to seed in your garden, you may well find that some of the seedlings come up green. Just, that's just a quirk of genetics. And you can favour the dark-leaved versions by simply weeding out the green-leaved ones. So just let them grow up, see what's come up, take out the green ones and then you've got yourself a nice stand of uh anthriscus raven's wing in your garden
1: yeah again same is true of foxgloves so if you've got white foxgloves when all the seedlings come up if they've got purple streaking underneath the leaves and on the stems then that's a sign that they're more likely to come out purple so you just weed those out and leave the ones without any purple staining and uh you're more likely to have white foxgloves in the next generation
0: so what bugs and wonderful wildlife delights can you expect to attract into your garden if you plant yourself some cow parsley? As I said before, it does not rely on specialist pollinators, so it attracts in a really wide range of insects. And I counted 214 species that have been recorded visiting cow parsley. So that's a lot of different insects.
1: On a database, not personally.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> that was a long day. Yeah, I'm not going to cover all 214 here as well. I'm just going to give you the the highlights. So the orange tip butterfly, which emerges around the same time, uses it as a really good nectar source and also the marmalade hoverflies which is *episurface balteatus and that is a really small hoverfly up to just over a centimeter long
1: oh for that one just forget the latin and call it the marmalade oh it's hoverfly. such a great name so nice
0: yeah and it's an orange hoverfly with black bands across his body and funnily enough after reading about this i saw one yesterday oh nice which is great they are quite they've got very very narrow bodies it's also our most common hoverfly, and it both breeds here, but also this is fascinating: it migrates from continental Europe. Something just over a centimeter actually migrates from, you know, across the sea. I mean, that is amazing. Poof, mind blown. The larvae also predate aphids. And also many Coleoptera, so that's our beetles. Visit cow parsley, including Anaspis maculata, which is one of the many, many tumbling flower beetles, which is a really nice name, isn't it? Oh, tumbling flower beetles. That's lovely. Yes, and it it, well, it's called that because what you find is if you disturb it, it does tend to fall off the flower and sort of. (laughs) Well, it then sort of wiggles around on the floor to try and confuse its predators. Which yeah, it's quite sweet. And that one is small, yellowish brown with variable black markings. It actually loves congregating on a, quite a wide range of of white flowers in at this time of year, including hawthorn and elder flowers. Oh, so you might see it on your on your countryside ramblings. And as I said before, bees also do use it. So up to fourteen species of bee have been recorded on cow parsley. So really, really fantastic for those pollinators. As well as all those pollinator species that benefit from cow parsley, there are also a lot of different species that rely on its leaves as a food source. And given one of its many common names is rabbit meat, it's absolutely no surprise that rabbits eat the leaves and they really, really do love it. As well as that, we've also got nineteen different moths that enjoy cow parsley as, as a leaf food plant. And that includes the common flat body moth.
1: Not heard of that one?
0: I've not heard of that one. That one's quite interesting because if you walk around um sort of between May and July, you'll actually you may well see like webbing on the leaves of cow parsley and also other embolifera. And that is the work of the common flat body moth. And that happens between May and July. There's also the white spotted pug moth, which is a really great name. There are also six beetle species, five fly species, and also nine of the hemiptera, which is the grouping for the true bugs. And that includes our aphids as well. And all of those use cow parsley as their food plant. So yes, lots and lots of species so as with all of the native plants of the week that we give you we hope that we've convinced some of you to plant it in your gardens
1: yeah and even if you don't have the space for it now is the time to go out and look at it in the countryside so just before we sign off the next episode coming up is going to be our latest book club and that's do bees need weeds written by gareth richards and holly farrell which has got hundreds of fantastic tips on things that you can do for wildlife in your garden at home and we'll be posting some of those on twitter and facebook in the next couple of weeks and coming up after that is another big topic and this is one that we've been spending a lot of time researching and that is whether you should be growing native or non-native plants in your garden and which ones are better for wildlife
0: we're actually developing a talk on this aren't we for various
1: gardening groups so
0: yeah you guys are going to be our guinea pigs Pa. (laughs)
1: yeah yeah it's something we've already had some questions on yeah hopefully we'll be able to fit it into one episode because it's a it's a complicated topic but we want to give you the the rounded view don't we yes we do so with that said if you want to get in touch you can go to twitter.com forward slash the wild gdn or to facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast to find all the show notes there'll either be a link in whatever podcast host you're using or you can go to our website ellieswellies.com where there's a podcast section which has all the show notes for the latest episode if you'd like to consider donating you can go to our fundraiser get the wildlife podcast some gear and with that said until the next time keep gardening bye bye